0: My guest this week is Clint Adams. Clint is a former police officer, a counselor, and also author of the book Lighting the Blue Flame. This is a great episode on mental health. I hope you guys enjoy it. Please check me out on social media at NewarkidY, Instagram, and Twitter, NewarkidY Comedian on Facebook. And uh, please follow and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Give it a good rating, that always helps. But let's get into this week's episode, everybody. My guest this week, Clint Adams. All right, welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. I'm here with Clint Adams. Clint, thanks for joining me, my (laughs) man.
1: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, this is going to be uh, fun. Uh, so you're here, uh, you're joining me from uh, Brisbane, Australia. So uh, it's a cold day after, which is pretty cool. But uh, you have such an interesting story that I definitely want to get into. So you're a former police officer, uh, turned into a counselor, and now an author of the new book, uh, Lighting the Blue Flame. for um, mm-hmm. our audience just a little bit of your background and how you went to becoming a police officer and to counselor and to author.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. So um I suppose, you know, through through high school I became really interested in in psychology, m- more sort of forensic psychology, which is kind of where the interest of the police stuff came in. So this is around the time of silence of the lambs, you know, profiling was kind of new and and, and very exciting and, and kind of, you know, um the John Douglases of the world from the FBI were really doing great stuff in there. So I got really interested in in understanding, I guess probably the nasty side of, of human beings in terms of, mm-hmm. of um you know, serial killers and that kind of stuff. And so I, I studied, a, I did a science degree in psychology and pharmacology, kind of looking at, you know, brain space and, and, and what's happening chemically and all that kind of stuff as well as as obviously the the uh, forensic side. So in, in Australia, the way the police forces work here, they're very much run by the state. So I lived in a state called Victoria here in Australia and the whole, um, all the academies are all based in, in the state itself and, they, and everyone gets kind of train the same way and and forensics back then was run by the police internally as well so I kind of had it in my head that that's kind of the area I wanted to go into so when I finished my degree I applied and 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 became a police officer um, with the intent of trying to get into there I won't bore you with details but didn't kind of go the way I wanted it wasn't kind of as interesting as I thought it would be Um, so I, I made some other more studies and and went into counselling, true, you know, psychology counselling one-on-one like you would expect, you know, when someone's got troubles, they come and see the counsellor, blah, blah, blah. So I I did that. I left the police force, worked for a company um, that ran rehabilitation and I was was basically a counsellor for for that company. As luck would have it, the police, um, there was a lot of police members who obviously had problems, you know, PTSD and all the normal stuff you'd expect. And so because they knew who I was, um, they were sending these people to me, even though I worked for a private company because, you know, they felt better talking to an ex-police officer who also understood some of those things. So then as it turned out, the police kind of approached me and said, hey, how about you come and work for us, do this for us, Um, and they'll run it in-house themselves rather than outsourcing like they had been. So I agreed to that, end up going back to the police, and that's where I really got a lot of work doing ptsd work with with other officers more you know working with officers that had physical injuries and how they dealt with that and then other kind of things like you know we had one couple whose child died really young so they had to do and they were both male husband and wife uh, cops so dealing with stuff like that and helping them through trauma and, and that kind of stuff was kind of where i did a lot of my counseling work and then I, I got into HR accidentally, I won't explain that story to take up too much time, but essentially that, that got me interested in running programs and developing back back in my day, Shane, my age, there wasn't much on health and well being at the workplace, it was all about, you know, health and safety was even quite new then and, you know, I, I was getting way more interested in, in wanting to help people from a leadership perspective in terms of work and output and, you know, dealing with team dynamics and stuff and so a lot of my programs kind of developed in the, in the HR space dealing with adults but using my counselling background to kind of work on those programs and stuff like that and then over the years there's a lot more insight around understanding that um, you know how, how even adults are having problems with their mental health and then I was like well we've all been kids What can we do earlier to try and help with resilience, help with well-being and so all that kind of stuff. Where things changed for me a little bit was I was working for a healthcare provider. So we had hospitals, community centres of of health kind of stuff and I was part of the executive management team and I had access to a lot of statistics at the time of what our services were providing to the community in in the area that we looked after. And what was alarming for me was seeing really young children, you know, 11 and 12-year-olds, you know, on antidepressants and being treated for, um, you know, uh, psychological um, trauma that they've had, you know, even attempting suicides and, and that kind of stuff. And so I was like, well, you know, that's really disturbing for me. And then I, I kind of also remember, you know, as a cop, you go into houses, obviously you don't get called too often to really good stuff as a cop, mm-hmm. and you're seeing these young children in some of these houses where the parents aren't exactly the best role models, you know, they're drug addicts or they're just not looking after their children and, and stuff like that. And then you think, wow, these kids are the type of kids that are coming now through through our um, our kind of medical services. And so that was a real concern for me. So I started putting my head together around what I could do to maybe help schools. Or, or So I kind of developed a school program back then with the intent of, you know, approaching schools and blah, blah, blah. And I I did do that and it got quite um, a certain way through, I guess, politicians trying to look at getting funding for the program as a pilot or something like that. Again, I won't bore you with the details. It didn't kind of go the way I wanted. So over time I I came up with the idea of writing the book Um, and the book was about a story and and the intent was to try and get it out there so people can kind of see what impact just one, you know, one suicide can have on people that are bullying them people that are watching them being bullied and doing nothing about it or, or feeling scared and, and don't necessarily not want to do something about it but they're too scared to do anything and then also how that impacts on a parent, the um, the school itself and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I introduced myself in into the book as a character helping the school to deal with the suicide, the grief and all the stuff that go with that and then also what can we do to then help future students that this doesn't happen again. And so a big part of, I guess, the lessons I've learned as working with adults is rewinding and going, what can we do much earlier on? What are some of the skill sets? Some of the skill sets I teach um, at at the workplace around leadership and, and developing mental health. Obviously, if, you, if you've if you got strong mental health and you feel comfortable in your own skin, you're more likely to be, you know, um, influential in a good way and, and a positive role model for your people at work and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the, the essential ingredients are there to try and do it earlier rather than trying to change people when they're older and, you know, old habits die hard and stuff like that. So that's kind of how the book came about and, and why I'm doing the program stuff I'm doing.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's an amazing work too. And like, honestly, like, uh, my, my, like one of my best friends, like, uh, took his life last year as well. So I like, oh man. yeah, yeah. And like, I know what you're talking about, how, um, these things just affect everybody. So like how you're making this book to kind of show at a young age, like somebody doing this and like the, like the wave that kind of passes through everybody, um, that gets yeah. affected by that. Like it is really good work. So let's like we'll dive into like um into like how this trauma happens and like how it like how it stores mentally and then we'll talk about a little bit about resilience but uh maybe you can tell us about like how when trauma happens to somebody how like uh you it happens in the brain because i know you were talking about like fight and flight and all this stuff so maybe give us a little idea into how that happens
1: (laughs) yeah look i mean there's different ways to obviously um like you can have people who've had no childhood trauma, no issues, well, seemingly no issues, I should say. And then like when I'm dealing with people with PTSD as cops, for example, you know, they, they've been perfectly well functioning, no issues, no massive things of note. And then one event can happen and can change what how they're feeling How they're thinking and what they're focusing on is probably the key. When it comes to childhood trauma, it's a little bit different because you know they haven't fully developed yet. They're young children and they're having things, maybe bad things, happening to them, and some of it they just can't understand. So there's a couple of different, um, I guess, pathways to the trauma and and how you you kind of get an undercurrent. When when it happens to you as a child, it affects your undercurrent of you as a personality on how you even trying to make some kind of sense of it. So that's a slightly different aspect but if 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 I if I kind of bundle them all together and say okay regardless of what trauma you've had or all that kind of stuff it becomes a pattern of the way you think and that's kind of where people get stuck. So if if let's let's just use it as an example that I'm in a bad way right now. I've had things happen whether it's long term things or whether it's a a one-off. Essentially what's happened is I've got a memory of of some event or events that I've got there. And it and it affects me in a certain way. What happens is when, when we think about that memory again, you know, our, our neurons wire and fire together. And every time we think about the same thing, so if we replay the same event or, or events in our heads, we, we kind of our neurons will wire will fire and then by the me going over the same ground over and over effectively it creates a bit of a pattern in my brain and and almost a shortcut our brains are designed to do that when we learn something new like driving for example you know it's a bit of a mind ache because you've got to think about lots of things but then as we get better at it and do it much more often our neurons have wired and fired and becomes kind of habitual and just kind of easy you don't even think about going on long drives when you're as old as i am and driven as long as i have whereas if you're just learning you know it's, it's brand new so it's no different with with the way we we uh form these habits and, and look most habits are actually good for us like i say you know we, we want to be cognitive misers we don't want to use a lot of energy all the time so once we learn that skill it just becomes easy Unfortunately, that can also work against us. So in a, in a PTSD scenario, if someone's rethinking that same event, what it does do is, so if we think about the amygdala, right, it's the small part of our brain that's linked to our fight or flight, which you talk about. And it's our emotion center. So if, if there's anything highly emotional, the amygdala is highly involved in it. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Our emotions are there to help us give us kind of uh it's basically saying to was hey take note something's happening here and so that's what it's designed for unfortunately the way our brains work is we can we can re-go over and over and over and then create that pattern and so being stuck in an emotion can be a problem because you're focusing just on where the amygdala driven stuff is when i run my programs and try to change this stuff i'm trying to get people to switch over from where they're focusing. And we've talked about, you know, what you focus on is what you get more of. So if I'm focusing on that whole experience, which either makes me sad or angry or or whatever that emotion is, again, amygdala-driven emotion, i call it red brain. So what I'm trying to do is switch it over to where I'm actually using my my prefrontal cortex, which is the big part of the brain, leads a lot more oxygen and more blood to, to make me think. And so I'm actually using... Um, I guess, biology to change my gears around a bit. So someone who's in, in amygdala-driven um, thoughts, if you like, a focus, like w- when you go into a, a fight-or-flight scenario, blood goes from your brain into your muscles, getting you ready for fight-or-flight. So if I'm constantly doing that pattern in my head, I'm doing that to myself in a way because it's a memory now. It's not not the event happening in real time. So what I'm trying to do from a a... a, a uh, bio, biological sense. I'm trying to change those things around. So if I am working with somebody, I say, "Look, I need you to do some analysis work." So I get you to do a thoughts diary. The reason I'm doing that isn't is about making you think with the blue part of the brain, and pumping blood back up there because you're doing analysis work. That part of the brain is involved in analysis work, whereas the amygdala is not. So the little things that can change that focus to be using that part of the brain and not the amygdala is. Is 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 a really important thing that you're trying to do, and there's many ways to do that and change that focus. Some people can just do it naturally, but using a, a, as a as a counsellor, you you want them to be doing things that interrupt that wiring and firing. So what was wiring and firing over here in red brain, just by making you oh think about your thoughts and just write one line down, means that that whole cascade of um the neurons wiring and firing is actually loosened a bit. So you, you might go down that path. You don't go all the way and now you're making an interruption and you're using another part of the brain. So you're slowly trying to do that and over time you will add things to their activities to get them to break the cycle and so you you can effectively replace that habit of red brain with a slightly different habit and over time you can kind of move your way away from that if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, like to kind of simplify this a little bit, um, you're kind of saying like uh, when we have these traumatic experiences, like your emotional brain, the amygdala, the amygdala, the amygdala the, yeah. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah. <emotional>, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the emotional brain like that um, is like interlinked with a memory. And like, so when you kind of go back into that memory, the emotions come up. So either that flight or Absolutely. flight. So now that you're kind of going your blood's going into your body, you're less out of your thinking head, and uh, now you're just kind of reacting so if it's flight uh or like if it's flight, you're more like kind of scared. if it's fight, you might be angry, so you're this mm-hmm. is your, you're going into the more of the emotion right but so when you're yes. saying now we want to switch our focus, you're trying to say, let's get back into that thinking mind. So now you're mm-hmm. saying like, um, maybe like you're saying, focus on your thoughts, write down your thoughts. So that's more analytical, right? So now when you're doing that, Absolutely. so now you're putting the blood back into your brain and now, um, it's kind of weakening. more oxygenated. The, yeah. Yeah. And this, yeah. and this kind of process that actually weakens the, the fight or
1: flight response. Absolutely. Um, it's like, you know, when, when you think about even just human behaviour, like if I'm angry about something and I'm in red brain, and I'll use the example of, of the racism stuff that's happening in the States, at, at, you know, and had, had these massive riots and 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 all that kind of stuff, there's no issue with um, the protest. But if I'm angry that I feel like, you know, for whatever reason, that my race has been affected badly or, or treated badly over the years, I've just got that anger in me. The lash out part, like people going and looting and doing all these nasty things, on a logical level, you go, that doesn't make any sense. I understand that you feel that, you know, there's a social injustice and the protest is fine, but the the, the anger that you're seeing in the that protest stuff is what comes out. And so they're lashing out at, at no one really. They're lashing out in general because they're angry. So what you see as part of that is is the anger and, and that's where things can go, go wrong. If, if, if I feel traumatised, same, same kind of deal, and I do go into that red brain space, you'll either see that anger or you'll see me withdrawing and not talking to people and, and, and that's the other side of it. Again, fight or flight, the dominance of any fight or flight that I've seen, even working with, with adults at, at the workplace, um, there's, there's a really good tool. Have you heard of human synergistics? no. Okay. So human synergistics in a nutshell is a company that just do 360 degree feedback and they use a a special tool. This is at a a workplace. So they're getting, you know, people within the teams to give a manager usually feedback. And so what they do is they've got this massive group of what they call a norming group all around the world. So they can compare what, what the best profile looks like and what Maybe in the worst profile looks like, and then it's a development tool to say, "Hey, you know, you're maybe got some areas where you need to work on." But what what I'm trying to illustrate here is the patterns that they've shown is managers that are got higher levels. So it's based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So you know, people who are stuck in in a fight or flight undercurrent tend to be in the lowest ten percent of effectiveness. Not not only at work but in their own lives, their their health affected. So when I'm working with with the adults, I'm trying to get them out of being consumed by red brain and and get them into a blue space because effectively that's how they're going to be more effective. So again, you know, fight or flight just seems to show up all the time. If you get stuck there, it, it leads to problems. And so we want to try and look, things are going to happen to us. We're human beings, right? People we know and love are going to die. We're going to have pets die. There's, you know, COVID could come and you lose your job and all this stuff. So there's, there's things that will happen to us and we can't, um steer away from that but effectively it's about how we can take that on deal with it and then be able to move on lots of people find growth out of you know trauma this is the part that that a lot of people don't understand we talk about trauma like you know it can happen to you and then you know it's a bad thing and it is you know sometimes they are bad things there's no doubt about that but most people actually deal with it all right we don't talk necessarily about all the people that come through it okay and they've had trauma. There's very few people that have had no trauma in their lives. And there's lots of people that have had heaps of trauma and they're fine or well, not fine. They, they grow from it. They learn from it. They, they're very adaptable. And, and, and that's part of, I guess, where I focus on what I call the positive deviance, where we go, these are the ones that can, can make things happen. They change. And they all change their focus is the key part from a red brain response. There's a day where they go, I'm not putting up with this anymore, I'm gonna do this. And then they go and make things happen for themselves. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where, where we kind of move in that space. But understanding what's happening in the brain is very important to help with that. Because once you kind of get that, what we just discussed about being able to change and understanding how I wanna break those habits, if you're doing things then in a, in a more deliberate way to, to make those patterns change, you, you get much more effective.
0: Yeah, no, 100%. And uh, I like how you were saying, like, because, like, I think a important thing to understand is when you're in that emotional red state of the brain, um, it's not only just anger, it's also that withdrawal, like, a lot yes. of people withdraw from life or withdraw and, like, you know, they kind of, like, just go inward and, like, try to stay away and not interact with people. And that can have such yep. a horrible effect on your mental health and uh, just as well. So, um, totally. Like, Mm-hmm. So when you're saying, um, I, I love this whole idea is like shifting the focus. This is like the main thing, like how we, um, how we like actually come like through these things and deal with our trauma and like actually work on our mental health is like shifting the focus yep. on what we focus on. So you already talked about one, which is like kind of just writing down your thoughts. That's like a good yep. thing you do in counseling. Can you give us any other like exercises you do in counseling that helps us shift the focus?
1: Yeah, look, I, th- I think sometimes it's it's important that once people understand the principles of it, a bit of it is about exploring what works for them. Um what, one of the key things is understanding how our conscious brain and our unconscious brain really work. And red brain is a bit unconscious in the sense that we'll just react. Um whereas with conscious thought it's about thinking our way through. So stuff like goal setting is 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 a blue brain experience because you're planning ahead. It's not looking back it's looking forward so you know even even just writing down some goals and and and, and what you're essentially doing is when you're having that issue anything that interrupts is going to help you I even do little things like doing something physical so you go ah the thoughts just popped in my head right so um I want to do something else normally I would go and focus on it and feel sad or angry or whatever the, the emotion that comes with it is but you can do something really stupid like wiggle your toes so it creates and it becomes, as silly as it sounds, it makes you kind of have a chuckle. You go, I'm wiggling my toes. Or, you know, you, you might do something else like just stand up. No matter what's happening, if that thought pops in your head, I want you to stand up, I want to pin your shoulders back. There's something called centering. It's a Buddhist kind of thing. But it, it doesn't matter what it is, as long as it's interrupting and you're doing something in a positive way. Drinking six shots of tequila is not going to help you, right? So you want to change the pattern in a positive way whatever those things are so there's many things you can use like say wiggling your toes centering is a good one because it makes you stand up think about your posture think about your breathing it only has to be for one minute anything i don't like what i don't want people to try and do early on is try to do too much so you kind of want them to chip away so it becomes easy you can only do it for one minute you don't have to do 20 minutes of meditation or anything like that because that's difficult right because you know, you have to practice it, and people get disillusioned with it. But anyone can stand up for a minute, pin your shoulders back, breathe in deeply four times, focus on your body, focus on how your body is feeling, and and or you can wiggle your toes for for a minute and and giggle to yourself. And so, you know, anything so like for me, anything that changes that thought pattern and interrupts it and focuses on something else will slowly push you into a better place and what you find is over time you can do more of it because you know that one minute can then become two minutes or you can do some other activity we go you know what i'm going to go do something physical i'm going to hop on my bike or do 20 burpees or all those things just help one you can get fitter doing it and the other thing is it's interrupting a pattern for you so yeah uh, i think you you know the the possibilities are endless if you at least understand why you're doing it and and that's kind of what works
0: and I love that because like that actually kind of like shows how, um, just understanding trauma and having trauma and pain actually makes like, makes you more resilient, makes you, um, it's actually a po. It can be a positive experience because you're slowly learning about how your mind works and like how you can use these different tips and tricks to like, make you do what you want to do in your life. Cause like, like you said, uh, at the end of the day, like goal setting is uh, one of the big ways that, uh, you can get in uh, like out of your emotional mind into your analytical and be like, Hey, what, what do I want to do with this life? And that uh, can be like one of yep. the biggest uh, like positive changes you can make. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, one of the things I, I talk a lot about, um, I wrote an article not that long ago and I, it was kind of aimed at parents because I'm dealing with people at the workplace, you know, they're in their forties and fifties, they've had kids, some of them are grandparents, all that kind of stuff. And I call it the unconsciously incompetent parent, not, not in a nasty way, if you don't know enough about the stuff we're talking about, you can't be that effective with your own kids. If you, if you struggle with mental health, how do you help your children? And so what I try to do is really, like we're talking about here and, and the things that we're talking about here, it's not that difficult when you really go to it, right, but understanding the patterns, understanding um. You know, we have risk factors for things. So if, if you have childhood trauma, you're more likely to have depression. If, you know, you've got a single parent, you're more likely to have issues, blah, 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 all those things. But what I try to work on is, is focusing on, on success factors where, you know, little things that people, we actually know this, right, where, you know, if you've got a dog, you're more likely to live longer. Well, why is that? Well, A, you know, your oxytocin levels go up. I've got a new puppy and I walk down the street and you see people's eyes go, oh, look at the puppy, and, you know, it just brings joy into their lives. There's those little things, and that's because your oxytocin levels go up. That's part of, you know, the love drug and the hug drug, and that's why, you know, free hugs, people feel better about stuff. Why? Because, again, oxytocin levels go up. Lots of things can give you that oxytocin boost. So you kind of want to balance out the – we talked about the amygdala. What you don't want to do is use the amygdala too much and it becomes a dominant factor. Because it actually, like a muscle, it grows. So we want to actually get that reduced. We're never going to stop. Oh, getting a fright or a startle that activates your your amygdala. But when you get those hard knocks in life, we don't want you to get stuck there. We want you to go. Okay, I acknowledge it. If someone dies in your life that's close to you, of course you are get to feel sad. You're not really human if you don't feel that sadness. And and but then how can you know? You, you can grieve properly. There's there's things that are you know help you through. How can you then embrace what you do celebrate the person's life and and feel comfortable with it and it's not about losing your memories of them and all that stuff, so you know it's it's about um, understanding how that works, but then also going what works for me, what can I go and find out so about the unconsciously incompetent once you become consciously incompetent, you go, whoa, I don't know anything about this like when I run these sessions with with managers and stuff they come to me afterwards and go, I know nothing about this my daughter's struggling with stuff can you go and talk to her because you know you know more about it but then I'm like okay I can do that and I will do that but then I also want to help you in terms of what you can do for yourself and then you can part that on to your child and and do little things and, and and start to think about, hey, I want my kid to progress. I want my kid to not be like me and struggle through life. And because I've had people come after these sessions and they say, you know, I've had trauma. This has happened to me. And so I encourage people to talk more about that so others can hear it. This is the stigma about, you know, mental health issues that people don't like to talk about. So having people talk about it in a group at work, go, oh, wow, I didn't know Dave struggled with this stuff. And you know, he's, he's sharing it from the heart. And and people get used to it and and you encourage that. Conversations are a big part of of helping other people heal and understanding how to cope with things as well.
0: Oh, yeah. No, and uh, yeah, and I like how you said, like this isn't about getting rid of emotions. It's about understanding them and then like being able to have a healthy relationship with them because, yeah, emotions are... The, like hey honestly emotions are some of the most beautiful parts of life right and like you just want to be able to have uh you want to have like a healthy relationship with them and um like I'm a, like I, I come from a meditation background so like with me like uh in my years of meditation it's more of just like non-judgmentally like being aware of emotions when they pop up and just kind of seeing them pop up how they pop up and like let them like kind of yeah. go so like it is about getting that, uh, more of a healthy relationship. And another thing I was going to say, like, I love about how you're talking about interrupting the pattern. Um, I, I actually like, uh, just interrupting those patterns in our head. Like this doesn't even have to be like mental health. Like, well, once you no. get this understanding, you can kind of see, like, for me, uh, one thing I used to have a problem with was procrastination. Right. So like with me like, sure. <laughs> interrupting that pattern, I, I, I learned, and this, it's very similar to like how you said, like you talk to people and just tell them, stand up for a minute, put your shoulders back, take some deep breaths. And, uh, that's going to actually interrupt that pattern slowly over time. I used to do the Mm -hmm. same thing. Like I learned to, uh, just, uh, for me, it was just like, jump up and just kind of just be wacky for like a minute. (laughs) Just, just kind of go up and just be like, just be wacky. But at the end of the day it interrupted that procrastination like i'm bored i'm low energy but then i just jumped up and i was just like for a minute and then all of a sudden i'm like hey i'm actually kind of energized now i i want to sit down and do my writing because that's what i do and like i I love that and um yeah okay and i want to actually learn a little bit about you uh, more um uh, sure as as, as a police officer like so when you were, uh, as a police officer, like uh, was there something that like or like maybe some memories that like made you go like, oh, counseling's like actually something I need to start jumping into, like maybe in like your, uh, in your during your work.
1: Yeah. Look, I um, I mean, pr- probably the. The, the biggest event that had an influence on me going into counselling, even though I was kind of thinking that way and I'd started doing studies in it, I, we used to have cells in the police station I worked at. So our bigger police stations were situated right next to the courthouse, obviously. So you could take people to be who were sitting in the cells waiting to go to court, take them under, underground into the cells. So from time to time you'd have, X amount of people in in your cells, like a normal jail kind of setup, but effectively it's in the police station. So as a police officer, we used to all um, have stints in what they call the watch house or or basically looking after the prisoners and and that kind of stuff. So I, I was in there and you normally did it for three months at a time. So I was in there at this particular time. And you know, there's usually more males in in the cells, and obviously you couple of males and females together. So what they would have is a is a exercise yard with a few little cells running off it. So during the day they would sit in the exercise yard, watch TV, walk around, and they can do all that because it's not a big like a proper prison, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but on this particular time, there was this one woman in there. And she was only young. She'd maybe twenty four, twenty five, and she was a heroin addict. Um, she was, she'd been in and out of the court had had suspended sentences hanging over her head and obviously couldn't get off the drugs and and did more silly things and so now she was in here to actually be sentenced. So she knew she was going to get a stretch. She was going to get maybe two years or something. Anyway, I started talking to her because I felt sorry for her. The guys kind of had other people to talk to and they'd interact with each other in the exercise yard. She's completely by herself, just the TV on kind of stuff. So I was talking to her through the door. We have a big flap kind of thing through the door. You give them the food and all that stuff. Anyway, I started talking to her and, and just basic interaction, and you know, she was telling me that she's got a child, blah blah blah, and all this kind of thing, and and you know, she was really feeling pretty bad and sad about where her life's ended up, and and this kind of stuff. So I just started talking to her, and this is kind of where the focus stuff really hit home for me at the at the time. It didn't I didn't notice it as much until I'll explain why. But anyway, I was talking to her about saying, you know, well, you're here now. What what good can come of this? Because you can't change what's happened to you. You can't change where you're going. Um, you, you're in prison, the, the beauty about this is there's an opportunity to get off the drugs because you're less likely to be able to get it in prison, obviously. Yes, you're going to go through some tough times, you know, withdrawal symptoms and all the stuff that come with that. But being here, they give them, um, well, I can't remember what it's called now, but anyway, they used to give them stuff to take the edge off and uh, methadone, methadone um, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, they give them methadone, which kind of helps the cravings and stuff. So effectively, you know, <laughs> Apart from being in a hospital, it's probably the next best place to be to, to trying to come off the drug. So I talked to her about focusing on what she can get out of this. How can she get back to her daughter? She had a very young child when her parents were were looking after the child. And so I talked to her about focusing on what she could do. What does she want to do? Talk about goals and setting goals. And so I, I was kind of using the techniques of, of what I thought might work for her. Anyway, I didn't think too much of it. She'd been there a few days. We had these interactions on a, on a regular basis and then one day I came back and obviously she'd actually gone to prison. She got two years or something similar to that. And so didn't think too much of it. About a year later, I, I was going on a run. This is when I used to play football, so I was trying to keep fit and I had this kind of regular run that I'd kind of go on. And anyway, um, being kind of a darker-skinned person, I'll probably stand out a little bit more. Anyway, this one particular day I was going on this run and I saw this person come running out of this house in the corner of my eye and, and she's waving at me and, and then I looked at her and I could see it was actually this woman and um, she'd looked a lot healthier. She was, you know, put on a bit of weight because obviously with the heroin takes takes a bit of weight off and she looked so much better. Anyway, she said, look, I, I really want to stop you. I've seen you run past a couple of times and I was pretty sure it was you. So I thought I'll come out next time when I see you and, and I just wanted to say thank you. She, she told me, you know, she thought about, Stuff that we talked about. She changed her focus. She was really intent on getting back to her daughter, learning stuff. So she was doing courses in in prison. She was able because she was a model prisoner. They obviously allowed her to have her daughter at various stages and stuff like that. And so, you know, she said, "Look, I really turned my life around." This was her parents' house that she'd come running out of. She's got her daughter back. She's actually had a part time job and was putting things in place. And so, uh, it was kind of an emotional moment for me that, you know having just these discussions. And it wasn't obviously a counselling session per se, but, you know, I was able to impact on her through things that I'd learned, And then back then, this is going over 20-odd years ago. So for me, it really changed what I wanted to do. Um, When I actually did the counselling course not long and finished the counselling course after that, I actually didn't feel um, capable enough to want to be a counsellor and, and so I went and did more stuff and, and wanted to learn more. I was reading, you know, stuff that universities were doing in terms of journals and stuff because one of the things that I found with um, a lot of this stuff and why I think a lot of people don't know enough about their mental health is a lot of it's written by academics and academics aren't the most practical people. So when I read some stuff, like one book took me nearly four years to read because it was so high level, high, written by a psychiatrist, a guy called Donaldson awesome stuff, talks about shame spiral and all this stuff, but so difficult to read and make practical for someone. So I've, I've kind of used a lot of that. And then I, when I'm designing programs and things for the average Joe, they're not going to read this stuff. So how do I make it practical? And so again, trying to simplify it, but using all the the neuroscience behind it you don't have to know about neuropeptides and what's happening in the brain messages but you just need to go oh I want to change my focus because wiring and firing together that simple process right but there's a lot more science behind it And if you want to know that fantastic go and read it but it's about effective things that people can put into action and 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 make it practical so that's kind of where I focus and that's what that event probably changed what I wanted to do and how I went went about doing it
0: yeah hey man that's an amazing story and like uh I I could I I could see how that's like something that like would make you like that be very emotional for you and make you go like god damn like I you actually helped somebody (laughs) change their life and like uh when they actually even like respond to you and be like, Hey, like you were there for this like pivotal moment. I can see you being like, all right, like this is powerful. (laughs) I want
1: to like, it was
0: work (laughs) with that. Um, and like how you were saying, like, uh, with her, like she was in like probably a really bad area and like you kind of just said like, Hey, change your focus, look forward. And like, if you actually, you have an opportunity now to do that, then like, um, and it, it works like uh it's true and like i i've been like i with this podcast i've been talking with a lot of people about addiction and people who help yep. people and people who've been through it and like i one pattern i'm seeing with a lot of them and like how you're explaining it is like we get caught in these emotional states and like these states are so hard for people to deal with that they end up trying to soothe themselves with um you know alcohol drugs or just like yeah. bad habits and like these bad escaping habits. Like, isn't it yeah it's escaping it's because these emotions are there and they just don't know how to deal with them and like it seems like this is kind of a persistent thing so yeah like work like yeah. you do I i really do love it and this is kind of a thing I, i've in my podcast i love to kind of bring awareness to as well
1: awesome. um
0: Yeah, so uh, also with your police, like, so you said you helped a lot with counseling with police and stuff as well. Like, I would imagine, like, police work is probably one of the ones where people have to deal (laughs) with just rough stuff all the time. Like, what kind of um, tips do you give to police officers to kind of, like, be able to deal with these things on a daily basis? Um, Yeah, I don't know. How how would you tell them that?
1: Look one of the programs I worked on when I worked for the police so as I said I was a police officer then I did the counseling then I came back to the police as a counselor and then I also in between there I also worked for something called the standards branch where I was managing a team um and, and we were looking at programs at the time a bit like you know you know I know with with the the Black Lives Matter guy being killed not that long ago um that was part of what we wanted to do is we, we, we actually had incidents where police would overstep the mark. Um, and so we looked at, you know, what what are some of the risk factors around around that and, and why are they? Like, you know, if, if, if I'm about to arrest you and, yes, we're struggling and you're a threat to me, I'm allowed to use force that's proportionate to what you're using against me. If you're coming at me with a knife, I can use lethal force because you're trying to kill me. If you're punching on, I can't go straight to pulling out my firearm and want to shoot you I've got to kind of so you're making assessments in the moment right and so there's a key part of that and if you're threatened in red brain your fight or flight comes out and as cops you know the expectation is hey I've got weapons all around me I've got stuff I can pull out so you've got to make assessments on the fly but essentially you also want to be able to um, when you are no longer a threat like you've put down the gun or you've put down the knife or you've given up kind of stuff and now you're cuffed and all that how do I calm myself down as a cop in that moment, and this is part of the, the um Floyd incident where you know that officer was still sitting on the guy nine minutes later when he's no longer a threat. So, you know, he he didn't de-escalate. The other thing that concerned me around that incident was there's three two or three other officers there and they're not helping their, their mate out by saying, Hey Dave, get off the bloke, he's he's now no longer a threat. So, you know, part of the programs that, that we kind of focused on is how do we help each other de-escalate? One of the key things, I mentioned it before around, you know, getting people to change their focus so they're not in red brain and the blood hasn't gone from here into here, we're trying to pump it back up. One of the things we teach the police is to ask themselves some questions around how am I staying calm when someone else is irate If I go into red brain and they're in red brain, we're going to have an argument and then it's going to escalate again. So what we're trying to do is say, how do we keep these guys calm and women? um, How do we keep the the police officer calm in a situation where this is all coming? So it is a practice method around when you start asking yourself questions like, what is this guy doing? How are they doing it? Getting into that habit of talking to yourself in your head, you can keep yourself calm because you're pumping blood back up into that blue brain and by asking questions of yourself, you keep yourself calm because you need that blue brain. To, to, so you might be saying to yourself, how do I get this person to keep calm? You know, you're not just reacting and going straight into red, like what are you doing, mate? You know, and then bang, suddenly this person's now even more. So a big part of it, it's it's the same principle but in a, in a shorter time. So even when you're dealing with people who are highly irate or people who are suicidal, the key part is to ask them questions because you know based on what we've already talked about blood's gone from here into their bodies and you're trying to get it back up there. So you want to ask them questions and talk to them and calm them down in terms of creating space before they make an action that hopefully is not going to be too bad. So, you know, you're using the same principles to keep yourself calm and you're using the same principles to try to keep them calm.
0: Wow. That's yeah. Hey, I never knew that. That's amazing. Uh, I can see that being a powerful thing. Like, yeah, I guess like for me like I I don't really uh deal with those kind of intense situations but like I could understand that and like um I I'm a comedian, I don't know if I told you that, but like uh so before going on stage once in a while I do get like a wave of anxiety to, that that just hit, hits me but I'm going to try that next time. So like uh, maybe just start asking myself (laughs) questions like, Hey, blah, blah, blah. Why, why are you afraid? There's nothing to be afraid of what's on the stage. What jokes am I going to tell those kind of things? Like maybe that'll send the blood black to the brain and kind of get me out of that. But I I love that. And I love the fact that you, you ask the person that you're detaining the same thing and try to get them to kind of go through the same process. And uh, yeah, man, that's absolutely. that sounds uh, <laughs> that's, uh that sounds really cool, man. Um uh so like another thing you uh like to teach people about is resilience. And uh that's yep. I, I think that's like uh amazing because like like you said, we all go through tough times in our li- life. Or uh even like when we have goals, like you you tell people like let's work on our goals, but like it doesn't matter most of the time, whatever goals we want there's going to be an aspect of resilience to get there so um uh how how do you teach resilience, and like what does it mean to you, and like how do you uh like work on it with people? yeah
1: uh, there's there's probably two aspects so one's a very social one like one of the things like if you think of bullying and and you think about times now you know there's not as many physical threats to us we're not going to get eaten by a lion day to day and worrying about those kinds of things right we 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 a lot of it's actual actually probably social uh, threats if you want to call it that so if if I'm a child or a teen for example and I'm not wearing the right brands and you know that other kids are saying things to me I feel threatened by that because I don't want to be not seen as part of the group. I want to be accepted. there's There's that component of that. So when I really focus on resilience, a big part of it is the social aspect and understanding that look, not everyone's going to like you, right? Not everyone's going to you're not always going to be, and this is that risk factor stuff. So if I'm a poor kid who've got poor parents who who aren't very nice people and they're not good role models, I've got all these risk factors and and now there's even more social threat because I'm not wearing the right shoes, I'm not wearing the right gear they're calling me orphan Annie, I don't look the right way and that stuff. And so my, my undercurrent already, oh, I'm timid, I'm scared, oh, I don't want to go to school, they call me names and, and this kind of stuff. So this is where, you know, you really want to be able to help and influence that part of it. And so one of the things I use is a tool called the dialogue model which comes out of a book called Crucial Conversations and, and, and um, effectively it's about how you have conversations in your head and how you interact with other people. One of the things i would like. to to do is is at school level is have that conversations happening so kids can calibrate good and bad behavior so they get used to talking about things that bother them one of the things I see at work is 40 and 50 year old men too scared to talk to their manager because they're worried about how they're gonna react what's going on so it's a skill set that I really focus on with the adults around being able to deal with your own issues. That's why, you know, a lot about. I don't know about America, but a lot of the places here, if, if people are fearful, they get the union involved to speak on their behalf because they don't feel comfortable dealing with their own problems, fixing their own things. And that's a big part of um, resilience for me is being able to stand up for yourself and create some courageousness in yourself. The people that do things really well and are more effective, um, they're calm. And this is where, you know, teaching that calmness where you go, I don't really want to have this conversation with Noor right now because I feel scared, but you know what? I'm going to have it anyway. Hey, mate, the way you treated me yesterday or the way you spoke to Dave isn't very good. I'm I'm not happy with what I'm seeing, but I'm doing it in a calm way. So, you know, when we think about protest and and wanting to, to come up with solutions... The best way we can come up with solutions is the blue brain response. If I'm angry and I'm looting and I'm shouting at people, nothing good comes out of that. Yes, it might be awareness, but the actual problem solving and all the stuff that comes, and, and that's going to be on a granular level and on a bigger level. If, if calm heads are talking about how can we achieve better outcomes, you know, Nelson Mandela, when he left prison, horrible things happened in there, 27 years or whatever he was in there. When he came out, he said, I had to check the anger at the door because i would not be effective as a, as a leader coming out by being angry so that wasn't going to help him he recognized that in, in himself and so same principles every time is around being effective trying not to be angry or withdraw but have the conversation and so they're key skills that build resilience in in, in kids who then become adults and they become more effective so you know if, if we're going to do anything from a resilience side for for children but about instilling those kinds of things in them, have the conversations, talk to them, creating safety. The beauty about the dialogue model is a big part is about creating safety for people to have a conversation. And as a parent, you can get that skill set into your child early on where they go, you know, talking, talking through things. It's, it's again, it's a blue brain response. This is the part where if you can keep your brain in blue, you come up with solutions, you can speak more calmly. You might be pissed off that somebody's done something to you, but you can at least be calm enough to go, hey, you're not a bad person, but you're doing bad things right now and this is the stuff you need to know. And so, you know, for me, that's a a really important skill set about how you can be calm within your own little storm and go, okay, I'm okay. This person said something to me on on Facebook about my clothes. Okay, do I like that person? Well, they're not really that important in my life. So if I'm... Processing that in a way that makes me not get sad. And go, oh, he called me of this, and then I get angry or I get sad because I'm I'm feeling threatened. Whereas if I look at that same quote or whatever they post, sorry, um, and and I look at it and go, yeah, well, I'm a big fan of Dave. He's not that that important to me. I I can kind of deal with it and go okay no worries, doesn't bother me, water off a duck's back. and then I can focus on what I want to do rather than focus on what they said and make me go down that path. So you can see how that pattern just keeps coming up. Um, if we can change that a little bit, interrupt that, teach kids to understand that, go, hey, not everyone's opinion is that important to you, and you're okay despite that. You you, you can kind of just go with the flow kind of thing, you know what I mean?
0: Oh, yeah. And uh, no, I like that. Then like, be calm, but still like stick up for yourself like when there is an issue like you should stick up for yourself and say something, but do it in a calm manner and a uh, calm manner and like uh honestly, I've been in both of those situations where one i'm like <laughs> where one I'm like really angry and I want to like deal with it in an angry way, which always makes it worse and never does <laughs> it or i've True. been in the or I've been in the other one where I'm just so timid and like I just um, something's really bugging me, but I don't stand up for myself, and I just let it continue. And then that, like mm-hmm. goes, that, and then it just pot piles on. So you do have to teach some courageousness as part of that, right?
1: Absolutely.
0: To, I, I love that. Um. All right, uh, Clint, uh, this has been amazing. Uh, we're coming near the end, but I need to ask you the question of the podcast. So, uh, Clint Adams, God, yay or nay?
1: I'm going to go half on this one because there's definitely a presence out there, whether it's God itself. Um, like I've had experiences personally. Like I'd almost say I'm an atheist, but I, but I'm not because I've had at least two experiences that are unexplainable to me. One is uh, when my grandmother died. I'd moved from South Africa to to Australia. She was ill over there, and anyway, didn't didn't know much about it. But anyway, this particular day, we'd been here a couple of months, and I had this dream that, and so my grandmother, as long as I was, I was only young, and every time, so she had this, some nerve condition, which she couldn't kind of walk properly, so she used to have to hold onto the walls to help her walk, and I've never seen her walk properly. Anyway, I had this dream this particular night, and she's basically smiling, and she's walking through a meadow, and walking properly, no holding on, and she's very happy and euphoric, and anyway, it was great to see her like that. So anyway, woke up the next morning. Didn't Again, didn't think anything of it. And anyway, I was talking to my, ma- my mother, um, which was her mother that, that was the one I dreamt about. And I said, oh, I had this dream about Ma. We used to call her Ma. And she said, oh, so did I. I dreamt. And she told me the same dream that I had. She explained back to me and I was just like floored. And anyway, that was bad. Not bad enough. That was kind of trippy as well. Uh-huh. And then if, uh, because this was back in the 80s, We'd just moved to a place, um, a small little flat, didn't actually have a phone and there was no mobile phones back then. So my uncle, who lived not far away, came, knocked on the door, came and visit, and had said, look, got some bad news. We got a phone call from South Africa. Your grandmother's passed away, basically. So she died that night that my mum and I had the same dream. Um, and, you know, <laughs> unexplainable. Like, you, you just go, yeah, it was yeah, very know, yeah. trippy. It, and yeah, the the second one was I had this experience where I I was asleep and all of a sudden I, I heard a baby screaming in my room. No baby is in the house, but I'm just screaming. So I'm pulling out the clock radio, and I thought something, you know. Anyway, go back to sleep. Next day, m- my dad comes in and says, "Oh, he's been talking to the guy next door." And and I remember the time because as I was pulling the clock radio, I remember it was three eleven in the morning. And anyway, my dad's talking to me the next morning. He said, "Oh, the guy next door is." his wife just had a miscarriage at about three in the morning. Um, and again, trippy kind of things. And and so I, I, I def, I don't believe in God per se, but I do believe that there's something out there and, and we're connected in, in a much more spiritual way. Um, you know, that's probably where I sit.
0: Awesome. Uh, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, that
1: is a uh, trippy. That's a good word for it.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. uh, Just before we get going, because your book is about um, bullying and like a suicide and like how it affects people. And like this is something I dealt with in the last year as well. And I know how harsh and hard it can be. Can you give our audience just like a little bit of an idea of like um, just like the kind of signs when like somebody might be in this kind of area and maybe like ways to prevent it and like anything that we need to know about like suicide in general?
1: Look, I, I think if the, the better your relationship with someone is, the easier it is to pick up signs. Um, as I said before, the people that are quite vocal and angry, you kind of know, mm, you know, it's, it's quite overt. The the tougher ones to pick are the ones that do withdraw. Um, if you're a natural person that withdraws anyway and you're kind of a shy person, it's harder to do. So I- important things to do is, is just talk. Ask questions all the time. The other thing that that I really focus on, especially with children, is as parents, you know, the reason kids don't talk to parents about mental health and stuff like that sometimes is is because of how we, we're raised, right? What we don't realise as parents is we use fear a lot to even just um, get behaviour change or, or, or get you know compliance from the child to be a good kid and all this kind of stuff if you do this if you know you're going to have the internet taken away or if you don't do that then you know you're going to end up in hell and so we use lots of words and things but it's fear-based the important stuff around mental health and any discussable things from a parent's perspective is to create safety for them to to have it so you might say to your child and this is deliberate right? one of the things I Parents is be deliberate about having this conversation with your child. Going, no matter what happens, ever you come to me. If you're in trouble, come and talk to me. We'll deal with it, we'll fix it. But I do not want you ever to be scared of it. No matter what I said in the past, maybe I've said in the past, you know, suck it up, princess, because you're a boy and you're emotional. I do not want you to stop it. Yeah, you know, we've all got our faults, but creating safety for your child to talk to you is such a key part of any because. It's harder to see when they are struggling but they know when they're struggling and if they know that they're struggling and they come to you, now you know and it's easier and and so creating that proactive approach about them wanting to talk to you and feeling okay to come and talk to you no matter what's going on, we can always help you fix it and so I think that's an important, um, I guess, skill as a parent and and it's important stuff that we don't think about doing um, quite regularly.
0: Mm-hmm. no I like that yeah creating safety that's a uh, it's uh, true try to give a safe mindset for people and uh, it can definitely help them out in some of their worst moments for sure um, all right uh, Clint that was an uh, amazing podcast thank you so much for sharing so much with us and teaching us thank a lot thank you for having me um, please let people know about your book where they can get it and anything else you want to promote feel free to do it now
1: yeah, look. I've just done a website. It's not the best yet, so if you do want to check it out, so it's called it's a www dot blue flame projects or one word com au. So that's the website. There's ways to buy the book. You can just go on Amazon. They do at the moment. I mean, my publisher's in the UK, so there's issues with getting physical copies from the UK given COVID. So, you know, if you are going to buy it, probably Kindle's the quickest way to do it, or you might have to wait a month or something like that. But yeah, Lighting the Blue Flames, the name of the book. Um, just Google that and Clint Adams, and, and you should be able to find a copy of it. Awesome. All right. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you. Really appreciate your time, now
0: All right. That was this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I appreciate it. Please subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating, it really does help. And also check me out on social media on Instagram and Twitter. It's at NewerKidY. On Facebook, it's NewerKidY Comedian. I'm constantly putting updates about the podcast. When new ones come out, I put up podcast clips. And uh, yeah, I also put up comedy stuff, comedy dates, comedy clips and different stuff like that so uh, you can come check out have a laugh and get keep up to date on the podcast until next time this is another episode of god yay or nay